This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Toronto International Film Festival. Outing historical figures as time travelers. And Feng Shui 2. Robin, your Kickstarter campaign for Feng Shui 2 is in progress, even as we speak, closing on Friday, October 17th. How's it going? Well, we're recording this in advance, so to find out where we're at, head over to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, action movie role-playing, Robin Laws, or Atlas Games. Statistically speaking, you're probably about to smash through another stretch goal. We have arranged our stretch goals for easy smashing. Like panes of glass being carried across a Hong Kong street, perhaps. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolent heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood spattered gunplay, it features the key war. Yeah, the player characters fight across key time periods to control key sites of geomantic power, and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouserer? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer, and a bullet-strewn path to redemption? Because I am the cop of magic, clearly I am the magic cop. Well, look at because there's a hopping vampire headed this way. So to repeat those Kickstarter search terms, the fun can be joined by typing in Feng Shui, Action Movie Role-Playing, or Robin D. Laws. It is a mushy-brained Toronto-area podcaster that comes to you today at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff for reasons which we will soon explain. But before we get to that, it is time for a brief preamble hut in which we deal with outstanding business that arose while I was off sucking in the best of international cinema at the Toronto International Film Festival. But while it dropped, we did get some queries about certain stories or certain things of interest to Cartas listeners came up. And the first one of those is the uh, Daily Mail, that reputable source of all things made up, (laughs) had a story claiming to have explained Jack the Ripper once and for all through DNA analysis. And as you might guess from the fact that we are dispatching this in a preamble hut, Ken has some cold water to throw on that story. Yeah, the, I mean, over and above the fact that it's a uh, Daily Mail story, which begins your problem, there are a couple of things. First of all, there is the provenance of the scarf itself, which (laughs) it's not set in stone, and it's Almost as though. Okay, so uh, back up and tell us what the scarf at issue here is. The, the scarf is the scarf that was allegedly found at the body of Catherine Eddowes, who was one of the Ripper victims. And this is the scarf or shawl that was tested for DNA by a guy hired by the owner of the scarf, who was a Jack the Ripper enthusiast, I guess is the term that we use politely. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Jack the Ripper enthusiast, but I'm not buying blood-drenched scarves from from dead bodies. So I guess somewhere between me and this guy is where this guy is. So anyway, he um, he has this scarf, which is allegedly the scarf found on the body of Catherine Eddowes, was allegedly unwashed for 150 years or 125 years. And he then 
had it DNA tested. It had been DNA tested previously with no results, but fortunately, he found a guy in, in Liverpool who came up with a brand new uh, magical way to test DNA things, original to him, <laughs> and sure enough, lo and behold, this test demonstrated that the um, uh, mitochondrial DNA in the scarf was the same as the mitochondrial DNA of Catherine Eddowes. Now, this assumes, first of all, that no contamination occurred during the testing, and since all of it occurred in the same laboratory, that's an immediate problem. Second of all, if he's coming up with his own protocol for DNA testing, A, we don't even know if it's real. B, we don't know if that protocol limits contamination, because it, it involves hoovering up little bits of organic matter out of the scarf, like a little tiny vacuum cleaner, and one can begin to see the kinds of things that would stick or be adhering to various bits of the of, of the of the machinery, much less problems that could ensue if, say, you've handled the scarf wrong or any other sort of problem. And then finally, the thesis being that this scarf, this woman's scarf, was actually the property of Jack the Ripper, and that is why, uh, shall we say, things that are conjectured to be other sorts of bodily fluids found possibly on the scarf tie into the Polish, uh, I forget what it was, he was like a tailor or a barber or something, Aaron Kosminski, and in theory the DNA on those bits, which are from epithelial cells, which is to say skin cells, match Kosminski. Now, even if all the DNA is correct, all that means is that at some point in busy Victorian London, Aaron Kosminski touched this lady's scarf, and since Aaron Kosminski was in fact locked up for being a sex maniac, it's possible that oh, I don't know, maybe he hired a prostitute at some point in 1888, and that those prost and that that prostitute was Catherine Eddowes. There is literally zero evidence connecting, even if all the data are correct, connecting the scarf to literally Jack the Ripper. And um, uh, I mean, good for him for not using DNA from the Ripper letters, which is means that you've tracked it to some London journalist, but still, the the chain of evidence is weak, the DNA science, quote-unquote, is dodgy, and even if both of those are still correct, the um, uh, the conclusion is unwarranted. So, you know, it's it's a nice thing to, to pile another brick onto Aaron Kosminski, and at least he's not saying that it's, you know, H.H. H. Holmes or Queen Victoria or Jules Verne or somebody, but it's still, <laughs> you know, yet another uh, lovely Ripper theory that has pretty much no... No conclusive evidentiary body to it. Well, I'm glad you uh, dove into that. Uh, personally, I just, as soon as I saw the uh, tweet that brought this to our attention, the words daily and mail <laughs> together were enough for me. Um, I've actually configured my browser so that <laughs> da daily mail links, once I click on them, do not appear because I've been annoyed so many times by clicking on a promising link. And it's like, oh, that's the stupid daily mail. So you should just get it appear with like a, a big yellow uh, filter over it so that you um, can, can see that it's like yellow journalism, right? I, I suppose so. Well, I would just rather just have a blank page show up and there's a there, there's an extension for that. Well, they 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 cover the stories no one else will, mostly because they don't exist. Exactly <laughs> right. Well, you know why let mere reality get in the way of your, uh, your that's, journalism? That's not the way I present things. Yes. That's for damn sure. Um, so speaking of reality and journalism, <laughs> here's something that is real. Yeah, if we wrote it in fiction, would be rejected by our editors. The Politics Hut long-running uh, reality show about Rob Ford has come to a peculiar uh, diodental 
circuit in the road, or maybe it's a anyway. It's, it's literally a bump in the road, I guess. It has. A, it might be a chest cavity bump in the road, but the, that metaphor is even more strained. So Rob Ford is no longer running for mayor of Toronto because a very large tumor has been discovered in his chest cavity, and apparently he's been suffering intense pain for the past three months, which supposedly is the explanation for why he was dropping a lot of campaign events. As of this recording, the biopsy on the tumor has not been performed, so we do not know if it is malignant or not. We just know that it is large. Or, or more time. malignant than anything else taken out of Rob Ford might be. Th than the rest <laughs> of him, yes. And uh, it might be the mo least malignant part of, uh, in him. And of course, by saying all this, we're taking the risk that he will uh, no longer be extant by the time this podcast drops, in which case uh, we will seem somewhat callous. We'll feel bad. I'm always one who's thought that uh, it's hypocritical to suddenly speak well of the dead when you spoke ill of them while they're alive, so I'm not so worried about that. I'm not sure that we need to speak well of him regardless of what's going on. Right, but, exactly. But we will feel a little mean about having made a bunch of jokes if it turns out that he uh, departs for a, a drunker, crackier world after this. So Yes, well, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't uh, wish him ill, and I uh, hope that, uh, like anyone else, he recovers from his health concerns. But I'm not too concerned about being sarcastic right. about him at this point in time. So anyway, uh, it seems like a Cronenberg movie, right? This is, uh, Toronto is, turns out it's not, before it was Ford Nation, it was Cronenberg City. And, uh, you know, I'm half expecting that, you know, that it will have a tiny little Rob Ford face on it and it'll burst out of his chest and then it'll file for office in 2018 well except that we have we have something with rob ford's face on it that is in cronenberg style an eerie half doppelganger that's filing for election his brother doug right his brother doug yes indeed and i, I did the research chris farley had three brothers so <laughs> i don't know if, if what that says but that's what i know right so doug ford is rob ford without any of the charm yeah. <laughs> He's like the grim, humorless Rob Ford. Exactly. Uh, he's He's got all of the resentment and grievance and anger uh, without any of the uh, sort of uh, compensating uh, neediness on top of that. And bubbling hail fellow well-met, you know, mania, I guess. Yes, he, he just sort of seethes resentment and <laughs> anger and... Uh, you know, he's he's not even, like, sympathetic enough to be a talk show, radio, <laughs> political talk guy. And so this has really blown an interesting hole in the race. We've yet to get polling, but before the Ford pullout, your favorite candidate, Steve Boring, mm -hmm. i.e. John Tory, had pulled significantly ahead in the polls. The uh, person who I thought would do very well, Olivia Chow, who's the progressive candidate, has sort of stalled out, and uh, Tory was kind of pulling away. But once you remove... Rob Ford from the equation, and there's only this uh, waxy, glowering, homunculus version of him running, that the need to engage in strategic voting and vote for John Tory, when you maybe really would prefer Olivia Chow, uh, might go away. So it'll be very interesting to see what the results of the next poll are. It's even more inconceivable to me that Doug Ford could win, and Rob Ford, of course, was stuck in the polls and it's it's i can't imagine doing well but i don't know it might open up a a hole for olivia chow but i suppose with three candidates running there is room for some crazy you know coming up the middle sort of thing but uh, uh it is a, a weird ending if ending it is to the rob ford story now he has decided to run for his old 
uh, counselor seat because apparently even if you have a massive, possibly life-threatening medical condition, you uh, can't serve as mayor, but apparently you can be counselor, no problem. Mm -hmm. And so they required their nephew to drop out of that race. And so he's now running for school trustee. So there's this there's this great rearrangement of deck chairs on the Titanic. Now is now is the nephew a, a, a bumptious goon or is the nephew sort of like the the Fredo of the Ford, sort of the uh I don't know. I suppose I support that type guy. So far he's just a non entity, right. right? We we know of his existence and know he's the next generation but he's like uh, Billy Baldwin. We know that he exists, but he has touched no one. Yeah, so I think yeah. he that's that's absolutely the, the correct analogy there. Uh and uh or, you know, well, not even a brother, right? It's like, who's uh, who's Alec Baldwin's nephew, right? We don't I, know yet. I don't know. So, he may not have one. Yeah, so apparently he's demonstrated... All I know about him is that he's demonstrated no prior interest in educational policy before running for school trustees. So, uh, well, there you go. That qualifies him just as well as virtually any other school trustee. This this whole thing is turning you into an American, Robin. That was very cynical and, and bitter. I thought in, in Canada, all the school trustees were sort of magically selected by the sorting beaver. <laughs> No, we're we're not that quite. Uh, we're, we're not that Nordic. Okay. All right. um, in fact, there's a, there's currently a big uh, expenses scandal around uh, Toronto school trustees uh, as they try to figure out why they are charging twenty eight dollar cookies. <laughs> well, because who wants to pay twenty eight dollars of your own money for exactly. a cookie? Exactly, it's that's, an outrageous amount easy. of money yeah. for anyone other than the public uh, school system, right. which of course has all the money in the world for twenty eight dollar cookies. Yes. So, I mean, the further you go down, down the food chain of office, the and the less attentive voters are going to be to a position as necessarily they are going to be to school trustee. I mean, I certainly don't do a ton of research into school trustee. I'm not a parent. And well, it's, it's, it's relatively um, uh, academic <laughs> for you. Right. But, you know, we've, you know, even if all the Fords go away, we still have other completely crazy people mm -hmm. as counselors, you know, that, that, uh, uh, there's some, uh, still some, will be some nut bars. Uh, you can be pretty beyond the pale and still uh, get an alderman seat in uh, in Toronto or a councillor seat. So, so there you go. So anyway, watch your uh, Toronto mayoral race news feed alerts, uh, listeners, to see how much has changed between recording this and when it drops. But uh, that's the story as it stands now. And I think uh, we have can now pronounce the preamble hut effectively ambled. The whir of the projector, the dust motes dancing in the beam, the uh, previews coming up on the screen, the smell of popcorn, whatever the hell that is under our feet. Tell us, we have entered the Cinema Hut, and when we enter the Cinema Hut in September, we know that we are entering the biggest, brightest, Torontoviest Cinema Hut of all. This is the highlights of the Toronto International Film Festival, which is to say pretty much the International Film Festival. Suck it, can and Venice and Berlin. This is the one we're talking about. This is Toronto. And oh my gosh, Robin, if this is you going out, this is you going out with something of a bang. I, I think that you have uh, got a, you did a better job of picking or they did a better job of programming than most times. You have a ton of, of recommended films. So I guess we should get right to the ones that you want to start us off with. 
Yeah, it was really an incredible year. Uh, as you allude to, there was a big price jump this year that really disproportionately was targeted at the people like uh, my wife and I who go whole hog, the total keeners, uh, the ones who keep the Bell light box, the big edifice to cinema that they erected a few years ago, uh, stocked with people to the extent that it is the rest of the year. And uh, part of the big price increases, we know that the bums are not in the seats the rest of the year the way they need them to keep that going. And they kind of uh, have sort of admitted, in fact, that the part of the price increase was to offset their operating costs. Um, they have a history of making mistakes and then reversing them the next year. And also uh, during the festival, it was announced that a couple of uh, local philanthropists uh, chucked in a big barrel full of cash for operating expenses for the light box. So um, hopefully they will be able to edge back from that big increase or at least keep it flat. So we're hoping this is not our last hurrah, but uh, it might be. So anyway, uh, every year I Basically, there's three movies that I choose to highlight as one of the best. Well, this year, there were two obvious best ones and then another four or five that I could have easily made the list any other year. The number one top film is one of those uh, masterpieces that you never need to see twice. <laughs> it doesn't have a high rewatch value, uh, but it's uh, uh, devastating in the way it is supposed to be. And that's Fires on the Plane by uh, Shinya Zukamoto. Fans of the Fantastic or Extreme may know him from his Tetsuo Iron Man uh, 1 and 2. 2 is actually the more interesting of those films. Or uh, Tokyo Fist or uh, uh, Snake of June. Uh, all these sort of crazy, uh, over-the-top, uh, mind-bending uh, extreme films. Well, uh, Fires on the Plane is a, a remake of a 1959 classic of Japanese cinema, which is based on a uh, source novel, uh, Fires on the Plain, or Nobu, as it is called in uh, Japanese. And it is the account of Japanese soldiers in the dying days of World War II who are left behind on uh, one of the Pacific Islands, the island of Leyte, and must descend to ever more desperate measures in order to survive. And where the Kanechikawa version is also a masterpiece, it's uh, in black and white, and it's made according to the um, standards of the day and is, uh, for its disturbing subject matter, uh, has this sort of real classical sense to it, whereas Zukamoto uses all of the energy and uh, craziness and the modern ability to... Uh, show uh, use horror images to show the devastation of the battlefield uh, it's shot in uh, digital with really hot sharp digital colors he's also able to show the natural beauty of the landscape and then contrast that with the uh, horrors of uh, what's going on so it takes all of the vocabulary of extreme cinema but then uh, turns it to what uh, you know you could argue that the horrors of real life have always been the subtext of Zukamoto's work well now he's taking on the ultimate real life uh, horror which is the the uh, the horror of war and uh, it really uh, it's sort of an definitely an uncompromising film and uh, one that's uh, a tough watch, but of course it has to be. That's mm -hmm. the entire that's point. The point. So uh, that's one that's sort of kind of an insistent masterpiece. It's not necessarily the one that I loved the most, but I think it's the one that just speaks up for itself as definitely his uh, career masterpiece to date and something that you uh, really have to reckon with as a, a piece of cinema. Yeah. Now, would you call that a horror film or would you call that a sort of a realist film 
that is shot using the language of horror, right? I mean, because there are plenty of horror films in which nothing at all supernatural happens. Films like Psycho, which is clearly still a horror film, right? In the structuring and the, and the right. sort of the supernatural gravity given to stuff. But you would say this is a naturalistic film that is shot in the language or the, or the, or the vocabulary of extreme horror. Right. right. Um, it, it, it belongs in the same category as uh, Elim Klevov's Soviet film Come and See or the uh, first act of Saving Private Ryan right. okay. as something that shows the intensity of uh, warfare in a way that yeah. you do not want to see. Mm -hmm. And that involves some uh, rubber body parts. Right. Um, but it's definitely a realist cinema about something that you do not want to contemplate the reality of rather than uh, something that you could you're not going to sell this to your friends by saying, hey, let's watch a horror movie, uh, except in the sort of greater sense that any really disturbing movie about a real-life historical incident is about, uh, you know, the greater mm -hmm. horror of real right. life. Uh, so moving on from depressing, horrible horror to exciting suicide and paranoia, um, you have discovered a Taiwanese filmmaker who is not tiresome. So that seems to me to be sort of, uh, you've buried the lead there, that that's the big, the big news here. <laughs> Uh, yes, this film is called uh, Partners in Crime. It's by Chang Jung Chi, and it's a film that, like a lot of Taiwanese films, is about high school, but unlike a lot of Taiwanese films, has, or at least the ones that reach the international market, is one that uses all the language of cinema, including uh, music and framing and color and suspense, to create something that basically has kind of the feeling of the conversation, but is about the sort of conspiratorial world of high school. And it's about uh, three schoolmates who don't really know each other, but all at, at roughly the same time stumble onto the body of a young girl who has fallen from the balcony of her apartment in what looks like a suicide. And that bonds them together as friends. And then they start to investigate the reasons behind her suicide, which the adults have no interest in. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really love about this film and makes it, you know, a top grade film for me is that it never settles into the story that you think it's going to. It, you think given the way that it's presented, it's going to become a conventional thriller at some point, but instead it, while creating this atmosphere remains absolutely true to the real behavior of teenagers and they're not yet developed logic circuits. Right. So it's one of those films that um, I don't want to give too much away about the storyline, but it was really captivatingly made. It was uh, it had a fresh pace. And uh, if you know Taiwanese cinema, you're used to sometimes really great and sometimes somewhat boring mm -hmm. films. Edward Yang is my favorite Taiwanese filmmaker. He's no longer with us, but even his films were uh, very sort of slow and naturalistic. And uh, Languid is the film festival warning word there. Yes. Well, not all languid films are films that I would not recommend, yeah. but unless you are a master of cinema, who I like, <laughs> uh, unlike Hu Hao Shen, for example, who is acknowledged as a master of cinema, but I always find him deadly boring. Um, if you're reading a description of a film in a film festival, language might mean that it is uh, riveting despite its slow pace, but more often it just means boring. And those are the films that I tend to, uh, as much as possible, uh, wait for somebody else to like them rather than <laughs> spending a festival slot on them. Right. Well, um, ordinarily this would be the time where we talk about all the South Korean films, but I think that would kill the whole rest of the segment. So keep in mind there are even more South Korean films than the ones we're talking about. 
but did you want to hit a girl at my door, uh, even though there is no uh, sort of genre element to it? Or Very quickly, I should mention the other one that I consider the, the masterpiece, uh, which is Not My Type. It's by uh, Lucas Belvaux, who usually makes uh, crime films. He's Belgian. This film is set in France. And it is a love story between a intellectual, a philosopher, and a dyed-in-the-wool Parisian who is uh, transferred for his teaching job to a small town and uh, dreads the prospect of that, but runs into a uh, beautiful hairdresser, and they form a relationship despite the fact, as the title suggests, that they are uh, incompatible. They're from different worlds. And that sounds like the description of sort of a dumb, frothy romantic comedy about people overcoming their differences, but this stays absolutely real throughout. It has a really beautiful, true performances from Emily Duquesne and uh, Loïc Cordery uh, in the two roles. And it becomes incredibly suspenseful, not just for the way that the director shoots it and captures everything, but because the relationships is so real and the film is very beautiful and has a real sense of color, but also because there is no contrivance, because there's no romantic comedy BS keeping them apart, you know you're waiting for the moment when he hideously screws it up because she's <laughs> not France. Right. She's not dumb. Uh, she has a big emotional intelligence, but she's just not an intellectual and you're just, on the, at least I was anyway, really feeling for this uh, guy because if I'm going to, you know, identify with uh, with someone, it's the intellectual who maybe overthinks <laughs> things a bit. Well, that's good of you to sort of come out of yourself that way. Yes, exactly. And on the surface, it's just a very simple film. There's some other characters sort of in there, but it's really a, a two-hander. It's about those two people and their two performances. And uh, of all the different things that were sort of floating around the possible masterpiece category, that's the one that has really uh, stayed with me in a, a, because it does something that is uh, kind of magical with what otherwise would be uh, quite ordinary subject matter. Genre fans will remember, possibly, Emily Duquesne as the young girl in Brotherhood of the Wolf. So it'll be fun to see her um, dealing with a wolf of a different flavor. Oh, very excellent segue there. So uh, as you suggested, there are a ton of Korean films in the festival this year. They had the uh, City to City, uh, which is a spotlight on a particular city. And this time they picked Seoul. Oh, goody. Meaning that uh, there are uh, all kinds of really great, well-made films of both the art house and the commercial variety. The one I loved best is called uh, Girl at My Door uh, by a director named July Jung. And it's about an alcoholic cop who's played by Buna Day. Who, uh, you might recognize her from Cloud Atlas. And uh, she's transferred to uh, serve as chief of police out in the boonies as a punishment for her past behavior, which turns out uh, to be have been a lesbian relationship, which is still not cool if you're a high-ranking cop in Korea, apparently. Anyway, she forms a bond with an abused uh, teenager, and it's a, a really compelling human drama that I uh, loved uh, quite a bit, and uh, the performances are really great. And um, once again, it sort of avoids the uh, contrivances, and uh, but still managed to, uh, to escalate. 
So I guess we, from now on, we want to talk mostly about things that are more directly in the remit of Ken and Robin listeners. Do we want to mention this uh, neo-noir uh, sort of as a as a transfer, the world of Kanako? Yes, we want to mention the world of uh, Kanako. This is by Tetsuyu Nakashima, who's a director. He also did a really fascinating high school set uh, suspense film called Confession a while ago. Um, this is an adaptation of, I forget whether it's a novel or a manga, but apparently it's a completely over the top hard-boiled detective story about a uh, ex-cop searching for his vanished daughter and the twist here is that both the investigator and the uh, quarry the daughter are way more horrible than anyone else in the world (laughs) and everyone else in the world is really really horrible so it's a it's another piece of japanese extreme cinema that uh, sort of plays with all of the uh, tropes of noir, but completely turns them on on their head in a ultra-violent uh, Japanese crime jazz uh, kind of way. Even just the credit sequence alone, which recalls the great uh, 60s Japanese uh, crime movies, is worth the price of admission. So that's uh, an, it's uh, hyper-violent, it's assaultive, it plays with the form, and uh, it's a jaw-dropper. And I think it was actually Valerie's favorite. Well, there you go. That's yet more evidence that Valerie is top-notch. Like we needed more. Uh, As if we needed it. Exactly. And speaking of hyper-violent Japan, this time in the cartoony manga register, Tokyo Tribe sounded like it might have been pretty fun. Yes, that's by uh, Shion Sono, who has uh, done such films as uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell and Cold Fish. And uh, he's for titles uh, alone. Yes. Uh, And this one is a manga adaptation about rival gangs fighting. There's uh, definite uh, references to the Warriors, as well as a bit Mm. of uh, West Side Story and maybe even a hint or two of Escape from New York uh, stuck in there as reference points. But it's a a musical. It's a rap musical about uh, war between the bad guy gangsters and the... uh, good guy, uh, sort of all-American gangsters who hang around at a... Uh, Are they really all-American? I mean, do they have, like, blue jeans? and They, they wear baseball caps, and their uh, their hangout is uh, Jenny's, uh, which is the same logo as Denny's, except with a okay. J. All right, so they are all-American. They are all-American all to the extent that uh, all Japanese people can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a crazy, over-the-top film where the uh, villains are unspeakably uh, villainous, and the uh, the good guys are uh, include a ass kicking scrappy kid and a, uh, a young woman with a mysterious uh, parentage and uh, there's uh, kung fu and uh, crazy gunplay and uh, it's all done to a, a rap soundtrack and uh, just when you think it's gone as far over the top as it can go it goes even further over the top and it's uh, hilarious and. Uh, and uh, crazy and nutty and just a lot of ultraviolent fun. And now we want to talk about The Deadlands, which is an all-Maori horror film, or monster film. Uh, well, it's an all-Maori action film. Yeah, all right. Um, so it's uh, about a, uh, it's sort of a hero's journey thing where the young man's uh, entire tribe is slaughtered. So, of course, you're there in the uh, sort of uh, searchers or uh, Luke discovering what has happened to his aunt and uncle sort mm-hmm. of zone. And then he has to go and as the the young unfledged warrior go and get revenge on the uh, psycho badass other tribe and that takes him through the haunted lands where no one willingly goes because it's haunted by a cannibalistic ogre now given that 
eating your enemies is uh, just par for the course. That you know that seems a little pot kettle for them to be making that accusation, but you know we'll let that go. And so anyway, it's about him forming a bond with the ogre, and uh, it. Uh, is one of those films that treats the mythology in a way that uh, is from the point of view of the culture, but you, whether you regard it as a film with a supernatural element or not, is uh, up up to you. And uh, but it's a really great, rousing pre-contact action movie set with a, uh, a culture that is uh, fascinating and underutilized on film, and it's uh, was really fresh. Right, you can't say. You can't say it's like all of those other pre-contact <laughs> all of those Maori other action Maori films. Maori monster films that we're all so bored with now. Right. So the name of the director of that one is uh, Toa Fraser. So uh, I hopefully that'll come around and give everybody a, a shot at that one. All right. Speaking of South Korea and speaking of policier, as we had been before we got off on this Maori cannibal ogre business, uh, A Hard Day, Kim Song-hun, uh, tell us about why that is as good as all other Korean policiers are. This is... Uh, has an extra level of Korean policier because not only is it a hard driving suspense film from the very beginning, but it, particularly in its first act, it has an element of comic doom that one might compare to the Coen brothers. So that's an influence we haven't yet seen mm. in Korean cinema. So it's suspenseful and a lot of fun. It has a wicked sense of humor throughout. So basically the premise of this is it's, there's a whole bunch of these actually is a film about a cop who, uh, hits someone in a hit-and-run accident and tries to cover it up, and that turns out to be a bad idea. Yeah, there was a Russian film like that at uh, Chicago last year. Uh, yes. Uh, there were a couple of films with that premise last year at, at TIFF. Well, here's another one, except this one is a, a heck of a lot of fun. And so... Well, it's good to see someone bringing the fun back into the hit-and-run cop genre. Exactly. And not only has he hit a guy with his car and is trying to cover up, but it's the night of his mom's funeral, and the internal affairs squad is raiding his detective squad at the same night and so he's got a lot of he's got a lot of problems on his hand uh, so as as the term hard day suggests it occurs in a really compressed uh, time period so i guess it's not blowing too much t- since this happens in the first act to say that the place he decides to hide the corpse of the guy that he's killed is his mom's coffin. Well, of course. That's what coffins are for. And there are some logistical problems in making that work and not getting caught. One can imagine that there are. So, fans of Aubrey Plaza, which I think involves everyone who saw uh, Safety Not Guaranteed on our previous recommendation, will probably want to know about Ned Rifle, which is part of the uh, Hal Hartley sort of... I don't even know how to describe Hal Hartley films, because they're not weird in the normal sense of weird, but they're definitely weird. They're stylized. Hal Hartley comes from that great uh, mid-80s original wave of indie cinema, and like a lot of people working at that time, whether we're talking uh, Kevin Smith or Whit Stillman, or uh, for that matter, uh, the Coen brothers or uh, Quentin Tarantino, his thing is dialogue. Mm -hmm. And uh, he writes this sort of great, pithy, witty dialogue that is then uh, delivered in a a funnier version of the David Mamet deadpan. He uses the same company of stock actors in a lot of his films. And in this case, it's a continuation of previous films. So the familiar faces who are popping up are ones who have played uh, the roles again. And this is a the last part of a trilogy that has spanned uh, decades. So the young actor who started playing the role when he uh, was eight is now the young actor who uh, plays the lead role. He's 18. He's just gotten out of witness protection, and he decides to go and kill 
his father, who's the one who's responsible for his mother uh, being in prison on terrorism charges. Uh, she's played by Parker Posey, and that's the action of the uh, middle film in the mm -hmm. trilogy, right. Faye Graham. And so this one, whereas the first one is kind of big and novelistic, and the second one is sort of a screwball suspense movie, this is sort of a very stripped-down uh, deadpan sort of uh, resolving showdown road movie and uh, if you like Hal Hartley uh, you will like this conclusion to the film if you want to see Aubrey Plaza being lovingly photographed by the camera in uh, lingerie and other skimpy outfits you will also like this and if you haven't seen Hal Hartley but think that this is something that might interest you you can go and find uh, Henry Fool or Faye Grimm or any of his other uh, earlier films uh, like uh, Trust or The Unbelievable Truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, if there's a new Takashi Miike film, that means there's a new Takashi Miike film that we talk about. This one sounds like it would be way higher on my list, and not to diss any of the other films, but it hits me in a lot of places that I like. Over Your Dead Body, Samurai Ghost Play, Messing with Actors. I like all the things in that sentence. Right, and we're not yet at the point in the list where things in the list are less than good. Right, it's yeah. a whole bunch of great this is things still great. competing yeah. with each other for space. You haven't gotten down to merely good yet. This one has a kind of a stately pace. It is inspired by Mike's work as a stage director, and it is one in which they are rehearsing a samurai-era ghost play, and you also see the... Uh, lives of the actors performing it and how they mirror the action of the play and as you go along uh, what starts out as a very sort of stately exercise in formalism starts to have supernatural elements as the ghost story leaks from the stage into the action in real life. So kabuki ghost flavored slings and arrows. Yes, but very and also very much an ex, uh, an experimental formalist uh, film. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is not his most accessible film by any means, but if you like some Takashi Miike, uh, you will certainly like this. But this is sort of more on the kind of the arty spectrum, uh, like uh, like Gozu, where it sort of sets up something that's uh, more of a conventional formal experiment and then goes somewhere supernatural. And then, uh, again, talk about burying the lead about, what is this now, halfway down your recommended list? we get to a film that Robin describes as a combination of Richard Linkletter and Arthur Machen. And I, I, I was this close to just getting on a plane and going to Toronto to see that <laughs> when I saw that. In, getting in the rush line for the next screening. In the, right, exactly. Just stand there in the half-price tickets line and cross my fingers. That spring... Yeah, so it didn't have right. a title card that said Made for Kenneth Hyde. It did, I suspect. But it could well have. Right. Um, I hope I'm not overselling this when you eventually do see it, but it's shot in the American indie film style. It's about a guy who's uh, uh, kind of working a dead-end job in a California town, and his mom dies, and he's uh, in a bit of trouble at home, and he decides to go to Italy to uh, hit the reset button on his life, and he meets a beautiful, mysterious woman who, it turns out, may have some supernatural qualities and so the other the comparison made by the programmer colin geddes was if your main complaint about before sunrise was that it didn't have enough supernatural elements in it uh this is your film so it uh has a beautiful sense of atmosphere and the character parts and the the love story uh, really work but uh there's something weird going on with her something about uh, life and generation or regeneration and uh, i don't want to say anything more about that except when spring comes around i think it will become a beloved genre movie for a lot of people who like elevated genre movies 
from the um, uh, haunted indie to the haunted house comedy, you've got, what, vampire mockumentary? What We Do in the Shadows? Yeah, so this is from the team behind Eagle vs. Shark, which is uh, Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement of uh, Flight of the Concords fame. Right. And so this is a mockumentary about a group of roommates uh, who have typical roommate troubles with each other. Like, for example, you know, one of the roommates uh, won't do the dishes because he thinks it's beneath him. But So all of these huge stack of blood-stained dishes is piled up because these are not ordinary roommates. These are vampires. Mm. So this is a... a hilarious mockumentary film that you could describe as Spinal Tap with Vampires or Flight of the Concords with the Vampires. There are some other supernatural creatures that uh, show up eventually. Uh, Reese Darby appears as the head of a group of uh, werewolves. Uh, one of their big concerns is that they not use profanity. They keep reminding themselves, we're werewolves, not swearwolves. So it's a, it's just a lot of uh, fun. And the uh, the first moments when uh, suddenly with, uh, you know, it's shot in kind of a low-budge documentary way, but when the uh, CGI starts kicking in and they start flying up to fight each other, that, that's an extra little uh, uh, sparkle of fun added to the mix. But uh, it... Uh, and even though it has sort of a skit-like quality to it, it really does sustain through the whole running time, which is a problem for uh, films of yeah, this type. Yeah, I would it, imagine uh, that that keeps, could uh, get really old. Keeps building, is, and it's just a, a heck of a lot of, uh, of uh, fun and really hits that uh, deadpan sense of humor that you will be familiar with from those other things. Moving rapidly down a list of also terrific-looking con artist crime and Korea, all of your hard cuss sounds, we reach Cub which is a Belgian film, which often can be a warning, but so far you've done pretty well with Belgium. Tell us about Cub. Well, my worst film was Belgian, but this is not my worst film. This is one I quite liked, and it's kind of risen a little in my estimation. It's about a misunderstood Cub Scout who, on a camping trip into the woods, discovers that there is something sinister uh, out in the woods, and is it a, a feral child? Is it a lycanthrope? Well, things go awry as groups of people going to the forest movies often do in the horror context but it uh, has some surprises in it it's a lot harder than you would think uh, for a film with a prepubescent protagonist and it's uh has a has a surprise a nasty sting in its tail as it were so uh this is for uh this is not a horror film for kids this is a horror film and uh well worth uh, checking out and uh as we move into the merely good category we finally out of the great it, it looks like we're for a couple of uh cartas callbacks because you've got a new johnny toe which is actually a sequel to a previous johnny toe film that i'm pretty sure we've talked about on the show and then we've got the rare exports guys coming back. So tell us about Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2 by Johnny Toe and Big Game by Jalmary Hellander. So uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2 is a sequel, as you might expect, to Don't Go Breaking My Heart. It is a romantic comedy, but as the first one sort of used a visual premise where it's uh, about the interactions of people who are in opus towers, this one really uses all of his control of physical space and, uh, in this case, really glossy surfaces to create a series of suspenseful, farcical comic set pieces and knocked it down a notch because the ending is either a letdown or I suspect a setup for Don't Go Breaking My Heart 3, uh, but I oh. do not have truck with unsatisfying middle parts in trilogies. And, Nor should you. Yes, and of course the whole question of whether uh, commercial concerns aside, since the first one was a giant hit in China and Hong Kong, one should ever have a sequel to a romantic 
comedy is, of course, part of the difficulty with that one. Mm -hmm. uh, big game. Uh, if you know Rare Exports, it's about a, uh, a young Finnish kid who discovers that the uh, mountain that the foreigners are blasting is full of, of Krampus, the giant demonic precursor to Santa Claus. And you, when the Laps have taken the trouble to bury a demon under a mountain. It's a bad idea to release him. So check out Rare Exports for sure. Mm -hmm. And this uses the same young actor, now 13, in a Protect the Shot Down President movie. He's shot uh, Samuel L. Jackson, joins the Great Hall of Black Presidents, and uh, gets shot down over Finland. And uh, while the kid is on his 13th birthday rite of passage uh, hunting trip, he has to protect the president from the uh, crazy assassins who are out to get him. <laughs> this is one that maybe benefited a little in estimation from being a fun, entertaining movie in a film festival full of difficult, uh, challenging material. So it maybe doesn't have every single beat that you want out of it uh, or out of a big blockbuster action movie, but it was certainly fun nonetheless, and you could do much worse for yourself than to... Uh, spend uh, 90 minutes plus watching Big Game. And when you talk Canadian purple monster-making mist, then we're talking Cartas, so hit Bang Bang Baby with a couple of shots to the head. Right, so this is a film by a first-time feature director uh, who's made a bunch of shorts that people like. He's called uh, Jeffrey St. Jules, and this is basically a film that starts out as sort of a send-up of kind of Elvis musicals. It's about, and it's like virtually every Canadian film ever made. It's about uh, trying to break away from your stultifying small town and your oppressive parent. And uh, the difference here is that the sort of Elvis figure comes to town and also the purple mist factory on the edge of town uh, suffers a leak and people start to mutate mm. partway through. So it has this really interesting tonal shift and uh, I would recommend this slightly more highly if it didn't cop out a bit at the end, but there's enough weirdness in it that I would certainly recommend it to uh, genre fans and have to give it points for, you know, hitting all of the bingo card elements on their uh, Canadian content list from Cronenbergism uh, to the aforementioned themes of uh, escaping and making it big in the, uh, in the United States. And now um, I guess it's time for a cautionary warning about that Rara Avis, a disappointing Andy Lau film, uh, Revenge of the Green Dragons. How did that happen, Robin? Right. So this is uh, this is Andrew Lau, the director who did Infernal Affairs. And what happened here, it's called Revenge of the Green Dragons, and it's about the rise in the 70s and 80s of uh, Asian crime gangs in New York. And what they did wrong is they very, very openly reference Goodfellas. In fact, Martin Scorsese returns the favor of being able to turn Infernal Affairs into The Departed by serving as executive producer, which I think meant he gave them Ray Liotta's phone number. <laughs> uh, Ray Liotta appears in it, and it uses the structure of Goodfellas, including the narration, but the dialogue is painfully clunky. In fact, there are a couple of points where uh, members of the audience were laughing at the dialogue. Mm. If uh, This is a bit uh, how to write good tip for all of you. If you're writing a line of dialogue that you think is really serious and on point, and it uses the words American Dream, <laughs> delete it immediately. Perhaps consider another line of work. Uh, so this was very disappointing that it's just the... Um, and even the structure of the film and, and the story that it tells, it could have worked if they had narration and dialogue on the level of Nicholas Pileggi's, but that's easier to say than to do, right. and uh, they just did not have the dialogue chops. Well, that is uh, a shame. Now, you can't blame that on translation, because they're Hong Kong filmmakers, so in theory they're comfortable in English, and the film's 
filmed in English, right? It's not Chinese. But um, in fact, one of the screenwriters uh, has an Italian-American-looking name, mm. so uh, you have to blame that on a lack of writing talent. Yep, well, there you go. A sad but necessary conclusion, then, to the Cinema Hut. Finish up your Ike and Mikes and join us in the next hut. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons informs us that we were once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That, of course, is a vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back in time in order to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate the time stream. And this time we have a, a question from Friedrich Bjarnason. Ken, over your many jaunts back into history, surely you've encountered some characters in history who are so serendipitous or improbable that surely they're not actually native to the time stream, but they are renegade time travelers, uh, perhaps affiliated. Uh, they certainly wouldn't be Time Incorporated employees. They might nope. be cashiered ex-employees. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we've alluded to the fact that there are enemies in the time stream before. These may not be enemies per se, but they may be using their ability to move back in time for their own aggrandizement or profit. So, Ken, who have you run into who we think of as a historical figure, but in fact must be an undercover time traveler? Well, the interesting thing about undercover time travelers is that they sort of sort themselves out into your, um, your three categories. And I suspect that there's, like you say, the ones that are just going back for their own aggrandizement. And these are the sorts of, uh, the Comte de Saint-Germain is a classic example. That guy, I mean, that's very clearly a time travel case. He's seen several different times over the course of a century, doesn't visibly age, talks about being president of ancient historical events, has diamonds that he obviously just, you know, sleight of hands, having bought them from an industrial diamond uh, combine in the future for no money. Uh, he, he's, he's a standard time grifter. And you look at a guy like St. Germain and you say, all right, now you're pegged, St. Germain. I know you're a time grifter. That's all right. You know, just don't poison anybody and we'll, and we'll be happy. That, and so your time grifters, you can almost deal with. You know, they're, they're people who steal the Mona Lisa, right. Okay, the Mona Lisa got stolen in 1910. Everybody gets their own Mona Lisa and then we put the right one back, or a right one back. I'm not super concerned, because they put it back behind like a foot of bulletproof glass, so you can't tell anyway. So the the time uh, sort of aggrandizers are not your big problem. Uh, you, another sort of guy you get is your time tourist. And the guy, these guys go to sort of ridiculous levels to work themselves in, because they really want that whole experience. And I'm thinking of a guy named Harry Kessler, who, despite being named Harry Kessler, uh, worked himself a cover story of being a German count. His um, uh, quote-unquote father is a Hamburg banker. He sort of shows up in uh, German high society. And, and what era has, is he worming his way he, into? He's worming his way into the, uh, the sort of the fin de siècle. He's a, a big figure in uh, the art scene. So he he moves to Berlin. He works on the art journal Pond. So he's publishing uh, Nietzsche and Paul Verlaine. He's working with Max Lieberman and a lot of these um, uh, sort of uh, just before 
uh, Cubism artists. He takes over an art museum in 1903, begins to, and this is in Weimar in 1903, so that's a warning, obviously. Right, he's, and he has suspiciously great taste in Exactly, artists. exactly. So he's literally in Stravinsky's box for the debut of The Rite of Spring. Right. So he's doing what I would do exactly. if I had the keys to your time machine. Assuming that also what you want to do is go massacre Belgians in World War One, because okay, less so. Less I've, so. I've, despite the fact that the Belgians made my least favorite film in right. festival, I do not want to go back and kill their ancestors. Maybe that's what he was doing—was killing film directors yeah. or their ancestors. That that actually, I'll bet that's what it was. And so he's got—he's—he's um, he's buddies with with Edvard Munch. He's buddy with. Uh, with all kinds of, of guys. He's part of De Brucke. And then after the war, he's a, a left socialist of the sort that everyone in Germany is now, but at that time was sort of crazy and dangerous. And then after, you know, after the Nazis seize power, he just leaves. He goes to Paris. He then hangs out in the south of France and quote unquote dies. And a guy like that, there are uh, American figures like that. There's a guy named May who turns out to have basically known every single writer and artist of the, of the, of the New York 20s and 30s. There is an argument, although I wouldn't make it, that Marc Chagall kind of has that going on because he's part of every single art scene uh, for, you know, basically a century, almost a whole century. And again, if you're born a, a Russian Jew, then you can easily fake your, your, your historical background. So maybe he saw some other, some lesser known artists, uh, super colorful work involving flying rabbis mm -hmm. and uh, griffins and stuff, and then... Uh, figured that would be a big style to go back and adopt. And, and I, I think the other possibility is that our Chagall, the guy who we know as Chagall, found the real Chagall's art and, you know, got him out of the way or took him into the future and said, hey, look at this, the internet. And then that was it. And then he went back and sort of created, quote unquote, the Chagall works over time while still... So he's possibly just sort of importing them from right. uh, 2023 uh, and... Exactly. And then so he's, you know, living out Chagall's career, but making it more exciting and meeting more people and being part of more scenes than our Chagall, than our original Chagall would have. So basically when you're looking for time tourists, you're looking for Zellings, right? Yeah, you're looking for Zellings. You're looking for people who show up a lot of places or you're looking for people who come out of nowhere and do something amazing and have no background whatsoever. So Columbus is a classic. He fits all the profiles. Every single meter buries the needle for time traveler. He's got no clear uh, antecedents. No one knows really what his ancestry is. The more you look into it, the more obvious the forgeries are. He is really terrible at everything in his life except for one thing, Knowing where which North is, America is sailing to North America. And then he does the obvious cover-up of, oh, no, I don't believe this is America. I think this is Asia. And, he's, and he sticks with that story literally when no one else in the world believes it. So, obviously, he's just sort of, you know, selling the cover, right? He's living his cover, selling the lie. Columbus, Classic time traveler obfuscation. One of my clear cases. Another, another sort of version of the Columbus case is your sort of um, Connecticut Yankee guy. And there you've got people like Lucretius who are writing Latin poetry about atomic theory and what, what one assumes is sort of an attempt to you know, ditch around the Dark Ages or something like that. Or um, Thomas Edison, who is clearly a guy from the 29th century or something, who has no idea how anything he has works, but sort of has, like, you know, one dying battery's worth on his on his phone, and so he's like, I don't know, try everything until a light bulb happens. What do I, Thomas Edison? Oh, yes, right, I, I am. I, I know there are light bulbs. I know the yeah, concept. Now right. I just have to... 
once you've figured out that there ought to be light bulbs, the technical stuff mm-hmm. is just a matter of uh, hit and miss. And again, again, he does the thing that you, you, you expect a time traveler to do. Once you've set your reputation, you use that to hire people who are actually good at the thing you want to pretend to be good at, and then you just take credit for it. So a lot of the other things that Edison quote-unquote invented are actually invented by his staff of inventors, but if you've come back from the future, you know who's actually going to invent the kinematograph, and you hire him, and then you say, I'm Thomas Edison, I invented the kinematograph. So does this suggest that Walt Disney is also a time traveler? I think that Walt Disney, I mean, Disney is different because Disney is actually writing and producing. If he's a time traveler, he's a guy who impersonated the other Walt Disney, right? And then began and started that off. I mean, it's, I, I suppose it's possible that Disney is a time traveler, but again, Disney... Disney seemed to fit into his era a lot better than Columbus does, or a lot better than um, uh, than, than Thomas Edison even necessarily does. Right, he's he's more someone who captures the zeitgeist yeah, as an impresario exactly. rather than. Whereas, whereas with Edison, you can sort of see all these other things are getting invented anyway, but he's sort of like always in the position to to sort of take credit for it and and be right there before the the guy across the street or in, you know in the other con in the other state develops his own ticker tape machine or quadruplex telegraph or whatever. And it's interesting that a lot of times he gets hired to perfect inventions that he supposedly made and he just throws a big diva fit and doesn't do it, which is again, very suspicious because if you're Thomas Edison, you'd think that you'd be like, yeah, all right, I'll make this, you know, telegraph work better because I, in theory, invented it. But I think that Edison is, I've got my eye on, on Tom Edison. People say Nikola Tesla is obviously a time traveler because he's inventing things that, that don't work. But I think Tesla's just actually... If you're a time traveler, you're going to invent the things that do work. work. Yeah, he's, he's kind yeah. of a crazy genius. I think, I think Tesla, he may be a space traveler, but he's, he's definitely from, from our time. So with all of these people who've wormed their way into the time stream, how does Time Incorporated feel about them? Does it, is it afraid to untamper with what they've tampered with uh, in, because the results would be too unpredictable? Or uh, why do they tolerate all these... Uh, you would think, you know, sort of someone like Harry Kessler is a footnote, but someone like Columbus or Edison, they're they're mm-hmm. huge. Uh, is, is this because the changes that they have uh, wrought are uh, positive, and so whatever benefit they get from them just uh, is the cost of doing business? I think a lot of it is, in some cases, the time travel occurred lifespan-wise before Time Incorporated noticed it. So... Although Columbus may be a time traveler, he may have traveled before Time Incorporated gets set up. And it's very hard, you know, once you get to the higher bureaucratic levels of Time Incorporated, not down here on the sharp end, to get sign-off for things like, you know, stopping Columbus from existing. Right, because you'd have to prove not only... You you can't just say, well, theoretically, he changed the time Mm -hmm. stream, but you have to prove a negative effect that you would be undoing. And and I can't be saying, well, Cabot is going to discover North America anyway, and Cabral is going to discover South America anyway. So all we lose is seven years, and, you know, we we alter the power balance on Hispaniola for a decade. It's not a giant change, but they're all like, but it's Columbus. You can't take Columbus out. So there's a lot of, of, of ninny hammering around. A lot of it also is, you know, if you if you take out Saint Germain, well, now you've left a hole that maybe someone you don't know about can fill. It's the same thing as when you when you know someone's a spy, you just keep an eye on them and try and get a, a handle on what they're what they're up to, rather than have the other side replace them with someone else. Right, and you did get rid of the robot emperor I of did. China. I got rid of that guy because he was he was bad news. And given the emperors of China that I've not been allowed to get rid of, you can only 
you can only speculate as to how terrible the robot emperor of China was. Yes, he was just as bad, if not worse, and also a robot. And also a robot, which is not the way we rolls in China. So is there anyone that you've uh, failed to add to uh, Friedrich's list? Um, I think that that's, that's, my, that's my so far. There's a lot of people, you know, there's the whole... You know, what about Jules Verne? But I think it's not so much Jules Verne. I think it's like Jules Verne's buddy Nadar, maybe the time traveler, because that's the guy who's putting him in touch with all these geologists, and uh, and he's the aeronaut, and he's the guy who's sort of mixing in with all the circles in France. Also, another good sign of, of time travelers is their politics are always weird, because they don't fit in with what everyone else around them thinks, because literally their thinking is from a different time. Nadar is, a, is an anarchist, and so... In uh, the France of the 19th century, that's a weird, crazy thing to be. And his anarchism, when you examine it, is sort of late 20th century libertarianism. It's not even bomb-throwing crazy person anarchism, which is sort of organic to that time. And so, you know, Nadar is another guy that you might want to put your finger on and say, he's hanging out with Verne, but, and that's maybe where Verne's getting all these, you know, submarines and, heli- and heliocopters and such. Right. And then there's people from alternate realities like Tilda Swinton. But, right. A, we do not want to get rid of Tilda Swinton. We're glad she's in this reality. And, B, I, do, I don't want to anger her reality. Because no. David Bowie is also from that reality. And believe you me, you mess with the Spider King, you get the... The, the, the horrible mandibles, not even the horns. Exactly. Um, and anyway, that would be a, a different topic. So uh, it's time to uh, exit the proximity to Ken's time machine and move along to some brief self-promotion. As we open the closet door, tumbling out upon us are so very many hats. Derbies, trilbies, baseball caps, Stetsons. Among our many hats, however, Robin has had one land on him that is a familiar hat from the past, now relaunched in a beautiful new style. Tell us about your Feng Shui 2 hat, Robin. Right, so by the time you are hearing this, we'll press the button on the Feng Shui 2 Kickstarter, so I thought we would have a... Quick segment to uh, remind you all of uh, what I'm up to. So uh, Feng Shui, for those who don't know it, is uh, of my early games, the one I'm best known for. It came out in 96. It was uh, written in 94, and it's the action movie role-playing game, heavily influenced by my love of Hong Kong cinema, which at the time was a thing not many people had. Uh, Only a few cognoscente knew what the deal was with uh, Hong Kong cinema, and I'm proud to think that I helped uh, in some measure to introduce it to uh, role players. It is a game that people uh, still for years have come up to me wondering when there's going to be a new edition. Well, uh, now is your chance to go and uh, kickstart your copy and make it uh, the most awesome possible version of Feng Shui 2 that it can be. I've been uh, designing and playtesting it for most of the year and I'm super happy with the results and the state of things and the uh, extent to which it is a mechanical improvement over the original Feng Shui. And uh, we've talked about it previously on the show. There was a segment about the changes to the continuity. And uh, we've also been uh, kind of alluding to the uh, kind of the design effects. I thought that I would recycle some audio from the Feng Shui 2 panel that we did at Gen Con, but listening to those, I can tell that our audio engineer, uh, Rob Borges, that he would uh, bleed like a Nazi at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark at the uh, 
sound quality because there's this incredibly loud air conditioner. So, Ken, I thought first I would get you to ask me some of the questions that were asked at the panel, and then you can ask me, of course, whatever else you want to know about uh, Feng Shui and where the state of things is. So the first question um, I would like you to ask me is, is there a cyber monkey archetype? Robin, is there a cyber monkey archetype? There is not a cyber monkey archetype, but... Gasps! There is a cyborg, and if you want to describe him as a monkey, there's no one who's going to stop you from doing it. Excellent. So the... One of the most popular and the most unsupported by the source material <laughs> elements in the uh, the Feng Shui setting is that uh, in the original game, uh, there was a faction called the Jammers in the future, who are the rebels against the now defunct uh, tyrannical Orwellian manipulators of uh, technology and, and, and demons. And they included some uh, original experiments uh, by the architects in uh, creating cyborgs that use chimpanzees, including uh, such figures as Battlechimp Potemkin or the Gorilla Furious George. And in the new version, they've split into two. So Furious George now leads his own faction in the now devastated post-apocalyptic future, whereas uh, Battlechimp Potemkin remains in control of the uh, more sympathetic but also destructive jammers. And so to have not only two cyber monkey factions, but also have cyber monkeys be a regular thing that I suggest that you play as players, seemed like as if this is possible to have too many cyber monkeys. Mm. But as I said, if you really want to have that character, uh, just take the archetype and draw a little monkey head over the the, the face and you're, you're good to go. I obviously would be playing the steampunk historian cyber monkey, Sir Edward Gibbon. Right, yes. And the other question I would uh, like you to ask me is whether the new version is a reboot or a continuation of the original continuity. Robin, would you characterize Feng Shui 2 as a reboot or a continuation of the original continuity? It depends on what you want to do. Uh, it provides a variety of campaign frames that allow you to either uh, continue it, and so your first adventure is one in which you show all of your original characters that you had in your previous Feng Shui campaign, and they've been retired for over a decade, because the original Feng Shui was specifically always 1996, and the reason for that was that we were writing this game three years before the handover and didn't know what was going to happen. Now we know that, you know, it's pretty much the same Hong Kong with some surface, uh, some details under the surface changed. And so now we're just going to say it's the present day in Hong Kong because it would be crazy to freeze it in time. There's no reason to do that. At any rate, that means there's a big time gap between the last time you played. And so if you're doing a, a continuation or a restart, you can then explain why everybody retired from the Qi War and now they're getting back together at the beginning of the next adventure. And, and the campaign frame for that is called uh, We're Getting Too Old for This Shit. Mm -hmm. The other option is just a straight up reboot in which you play your original characters, but it's 2014 or 15 or 16 or wherever, right. whenever, as young as they were the first time you played them, as if the franchise has been rebooted and they're being played by younger Batman actors. Batman or the Flash or whoever. Exactly. Um, and uh, there you can also do a new generation campaign in which you are playing the sons and daughters of the original characters who now appear as Game Master characters and provide sage advice or get rescued or, or what have you. Or, of course, if you this is your introduction to Feng Shui, you can ignore all of those things and just start at the beginning and don't need to ever really worry about the fact that there was a previous 
continuity at all. Um, at one point, I thought, for example, that I wouldn't even mention the architects of the flesh who are the now deposed tyrants of the future. That turned out to be textually awkward, so there are little mm -hmm. references to them. Uh, but basically, that's an Easter egg for people who care about them, and you can rediscover them uh, if you want, or you can completely ignore the fact that there is a history in this setting. So I think that all of those different choices uh, provide a good balance of options for different ways and also require me to, you know, not set in stone what it is that you're going to do because different groups are going to want to do different things. And in fact, some groups ignore the setting altogether and just use it as a rule set for action movies. Now, in that sort of spirit, a lot of the more recent uh, films in these genres are sort of not quite so much action films, but they're crime films or heist films. Is it still, is it like Champions? Is it really celebrating the fight scene and everything else that happens is, well, if you don't want to have a fight scene, I guess you could do this. Or is it possible to have a heist scene or a, or a detecting scene that is the, the structure of the fight scene? How, how much can you, can you alter the, the core ethos of feng shui beating each other in the face? It is all about simplifying all the elements that aren't a fight scene, uh, mm -hmm. just the way that Gumshoe simplifies all the elements that aren't an investigation. So, for example, it suggests when you're first structuring adventures, start with three cool fight scenes and then find simple ways to connect them up. Right. There is a new subsystem that's been added, but that's vehicle chases, which is very mm -hmm. much a subset of action that the original core book didn't deal with. Um, and so uh, getting that right mechanically has been one of the, you know, the goals of the, the playtest. But my impulse, because uh, as you know, I'm always interested in sort of focusing in on one aspect and really tuning to that aspect, is not to uh, widen it out to try to also be leverage or to, to also be gumshoe. Um, and it's, uh, uh, although interestingly, that the original core book basically has the, the, the gumshoe idea just thrown in there as an aside. Uh, so as, as early as uh, 94 or 96 or whatever it was, that was sort of lurking in the, in the back of my mind. So in uh, 15 years, we'll look at the sidebars of Feng Shui 2 and figure out what you had designed already and didn't know you'd done. Uh, right, exactly. And there were also, and it's also really cool that the, the world has progressed as much as it has, and it creates interesting new dynamics because the way that you know, mainland China is becoming more and more like Hong Kong instead of the other way around, which is the thing we, we feared uh, after Tiananmen, mm -hmm. uh, opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities. So now... Uh, While still adding their own unique measure of gangster brutality to uh, the governance. Yes, uh, which is uh, one of the the themes of Johnny Toe's election mm -hmm. series, is right. that uh, yeah. you, th you think you guys in Hong Kong, you triads, you think you are the professional gangsters? Well, <laughs> here, here's how things are going to go. <laughs> you, we survived the Cultural Revolution, so we're obviously much better at this than you are. Uh, yes, and so there's the idea that, you know, the guiding hand, the sort of sympathetic yet fanatical monks thought that they were going to be able to make Hong Kong more like China, and they're very bummed that the uh, ascended, who are the secret masters of the modern world, in fact, uh, they managed to do the other thing and make uh, China more like Hong Kong. So, or uh, as I've alluded to before, that there's a an island that uh, it's described in the original book as being uh, a a literal demon, and now has Hong Kong Disneyland on it. So yeah. uh, that's a, a lot of uh, fun. And so um, let's see what else new is there to talk about. I've, oh, I found out that I uh, I have 35 archetypes. The idea of the game now is you just pick an archetype and then add story elements, but the mechanical elements are all there ready to go so that you don't have mm -hmm. to do a bunch of tinkering and can get started right away. There were 35 archetypes. That seems like a weird number, don't you think? Yes, it seems 
Like, you're one chamber short. Yes. And uh, I was watching a great Korean movie called Blades of Blood, and it occurred to me midway through that movie, hey, wait, I don't have a swordsman archetype. So What? What? There's whole movies called Swordsman, Robin. Yes, and you would think that... Uh, <laughs> and not only did I not think to add the swordsman, but nobody called me on it. You know, there's... Wow. People wanted, like, a noodle shop owner, but they didn't ask for the swordsman. But thank goodness that I watched uh, Blades of Blood. Yes. Once more, Blades of Blood brings families together. Yes. And it turned out that there is uh, still, as yet, an, a niche that wasn't spoken for. So he's the guy who's really good at hitting multiple opponents. Excellent. And uh, his shticks are all very uh, sword mastery. His, uh, for example, and he has an incentive to hit the mooks at the beginning of the fight and then move on. So uh, he adds to his sword damage the number of mooks he has downed in the current fight. Sweet. I guess to, to sort of close this out, uh, to put the inverse cap on it, show us a, a trailer, a scene, a teaser, a thing that we that we haven't known yet that is going to draw people to the uh, Kickstarter like the proverbial moth to the flame, except that instead of being burned alive, they get a delightful martial arts game. What's the, the cinematic scene that people didn't know they could make in Feng Shui 2, but now once they know it, they will think of nothing else. I'm not sure if this answers that question directly, but a, a lot of what the design has been is just sort of taking the implications of the original rule set in which the advice was sometimes further ahead of the way the actual rules were laid out. And now, uh, so the process has been uh, not about adding things, but about taking them out. So right. that, for example, the original game had rules for armor. Uh, well, if you look at the way armor works in the movies, it's either just part of the descriptive text for the bad guys, and it's just the way you describe the way they're hit, or for good guys, there's a very specialized subset of characters who have armor, and it works in a different way. It means you get to get up after you've been seemingly killed. It doesn't function the way that uh, simulative armor functions in role-playing games at all. Or, for example, there were rules to give you extra advantages for having cover in the first game. Well, that's actually unnecessary. In fact, what you do is just when you're not hit and you're describing why you weren't hit, you describe yourself as having dived behind cover. And or so, even behind a suit of armor. Yeah, or exactly. And then the bullets ping off the, the suit of armor. Or one of the things that people really loved about the original Feng Shui was that it described you as, you know, if you hit a certain difficulty number, you could describe yourself as running up the trail of bullets that the bad guy was shooting at you to then punch him in the face. Well, that's something you actually wouldn't choose to try and hit an extra high difficulty number in order to do, the way to do that, as the new rule suggests, is to turn it on its head. And when you get a crazy high result, then you describe yourself doing something like that. So it's mm -hmm. moving the things that people really loved, but really loved only because they read about them and probably never got to implement them in play and moving them into the thing. Oh, I know what the scoop is. Here we go. Sometimes you have to blather a bit before you can yeah. directly come to the uh, direct answer to the question. Uh, we have a, a foreword to the book written by uh, John Rogers of the aforementioned uh, Leverage Ooh, fame and there a long-standing Feng Shui fan. That is literally the trailer, the teaser. Yes. Uh, so he's uh, got a great uh, forward that's sort of a personal recollection not only of his own love of uh, Hong Kong action, but also of his affection for Feng Shui, which is everything that I was hoping for when we asked him to do it. So I'm really delighted that uh, he was able to do that for us. So with John Rogers there to knit together conspiracies and criminals and heists and narrative and Feng Shui 2 and time-traveling con men, I think that we have recapitulated not just this hat hut, but the entire podcast in one 
persona. So congratulations, John Rogers. You are the genius loci of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff 108. And once we've identified our genius loci, as you know, we shut the well cover and back slowly away. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Shields Ken from Rival Chrononauts by hitting the donate button at KenRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such eminent patrons as John Kingdon. Andrew Miller. Alasdair Sinclair. And Gary Schaefer. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or melodramatic hook by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.